0: Good morning and welcome to Celebration Church. I'd like to invite everyone at our campuses to join with us. Let's all stand, or if it makes you feel better, you can take a knee. (laughs) We allow for all kinds of expressions here. And let's recite together the Apostles' Creed. This is our statement of faith, this is who we are and what we believe at Celebration Church. We believe in God, the Father Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth. We believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who for us and for our salvation was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead, and on the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father, He will come again to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the fellowship of believers, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. Good to have you with us this morning, as well as those in Appleton and Stevens Point. And... uh, Before I get into the message, I just want to say thanks to uh, this wonderful congregation for being so kind to Debbie and I as uh, she's been going through all this uh, major work, surgeries, all the treatments. Ah, It gets, as you can well imagine, extremely exhausting. But we can really tell and feel your prayers and thank you for all that you're doing standing with us. And special thanks to those who bring food and come and sit with Deb and stuff when I uh, have to be on the road and stuff. So it's made a big, huge, massive difference in our lives, and words can never repay. But thank you very much for your kindness to us. We are continuing our series on the significant events of the Old Testament. Now, we just finished the book of Genesis. <laughs> Took a while, but there's a lot of stuff packed into Genesis. To show you the difference, uh, we had all these lives that we discussed in Genesis, The first book of the Bible. The next four books of the Bible just deal with one life, the life of Moses. So things start accelerating rather dramatically. All of this leading up to arguably the greatest single event of the Old Testament, which is Moses bringing the Ten Commandments. So we're going to pick it up. This is when we followed now Joseph and all the families now gone into Egypt. We pick it up now at Exodus the first chapter, first verse. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went, whose name was Jacob, Jacob, Israel, same guy, who went to Egypt with Jacob, each of his family Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. That's 11. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. And Joseph, that's the 12th one, the 12 tribes of Israel, was already in Egypt. So we pick it up now, Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died. But the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Now, when it says they were exceedingly fruitful, it is an understatement of a massive degree. Uh, we talked uh, some time ago when we were talking about the flood and the timelines and how uh, uh, the world's population tends to double about every 150 years, whatever the number was. Well, these guys were doubling every 15 years. I mean, it is a massive population growth. Uh, the greatest one in the Bible, I'm not sure about in history in general, but they, they were like rabbits, man. <laughs> they were just boom, 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 boom. Because God's blessing was on them. And then a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing, which means he didn't care about the Israelites, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous. They were freaking out. You know how people are freaking out today just because of immigration coming into the various countries around the world. Well, these guys were already in the country, but they were growing at an astronomical rate. And the powers that be started becoming very nervous about it. He says, come, we must deal shrewdly with them Or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, they'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. Which they didn't want them to leave the country. They had enslaved these people and were bringing them great benefit. Uh, So anyway, they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. Many of these great cities in Egypt were actually built. By the Jewish people as slaves. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. <laughs> Probably because they had nothing else to do. <laughs> but anyway, and they spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar with all kinds of work in the fields and all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. Well, then the king of Egypt says to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Sifra and Pua. um, And I'm sure there were more than just these two. They must have been the head midwives. But anyway, he says, look, when you're helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it's a girl, let her live. Now, the implication here is to keep this on the down low. You know, you're birthing these children, and as soon as you see it's a boy, do whatever, uh, make sure he doesn't survive. That way the people don't get upset and revolt and stuff, just all these tragedies, stillborn boys. Uh, So that's what uh, Pharaoh told the midwives to do. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? And the midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives can even arrive. Now, they're basically lying to him. Okay? And this is often quoted as fact. Uh, The context really is here is that they're lying because it says that they were the ones who let the boys live. So they're giving a false statement to, the, to Pharaoh in order to protect these lies. So God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Oftentimes midwives were women who couldn't have their own children, and so they got into helping birth others, so now they have their own families. God greatly blessed them, continued to bless the people. Uh, it brings a, a little bit of a moral question uh, when is a lie okay? <laughs> and uh, without getting into the weeds on it, there's several times actually in the Bible we'll see them where someone told an absolute falsehood and God blessed them as a result. Now, the Bible in the Ten Commandments, we summarize, say, thou shalt not lie. Well, it says thou shalt not bear false witness testifying against someone. So there are times when you don't have to necessarily be completely honest with the devil. Somebody say Amen. Now, I know it's a dangerous territory. I remember back back in the uh, late 1800s when Pastor Joe and I were ministering. (laughs) And uh, we smuggled Bibles uh, into countries behind the Iron Curtain at the time. It was highly illegal, and we did it anyway because we wanted to take the word of God, and we snuck into these places, and it was quite an experience. Uh, And there were Christians back home who were appalled and said, Christians should never disobey the law idiots anyway so <laughs> there says here, it says they disobeyed the king you remember in the new testament when they told the apostles that they were forbidden to preach in the name of jesus and he said they said to him look we have to obey god rather than man at some point there's a line that is drawn and if the government forbids us for example to gather and to worship and to serve god like in china where it's illegal they do it anyway at their own peril. But the church over there is growing incredibly. Probably the largest group of Christians in the world today is now in communist China. There are tons of them everywhere. The government's freaking out, much like Pharaoh was freaking out about all these Jews populating. Uh, The Chinese government is freaking out about all these Christians. And if you've been reading it all in the papers and stuff over the last year, they've been really bringing down the hammer and tearing down crosses off of buildings and trying to they're still trying to prosecute these churches that meet in people's homes. The problem is that they have a hard time finding where they all are because they're sneaking around and they're not telling them. Well, they should tell the truth. Nah, not in a situation like that. So anyway, God bless these midwives because they basically blew off Pharaoh, told him a fairy tale. And then Pharaoh said, forget it. We're just going to bring this out in the open. And he gave this order to so all his people every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. And that's what they started doing. So we don't know how many boys are being killed at this point, but it's enough and it's shocking. And it's just another horribly oppressive thing that these people are doing to this uh, group of, uh, to the Egyptians are doing to these people. So we continue the story, chapter two, Now, a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son. Uh Uh-oh. What happens? As soon as they find out it's a boy, they're going to take him and throw him into the Nile River and drown the child. When he saw that he was a fine child, which I kind of smile, all mothers think their babies are fine child. (laughs) Even the really ugly ones. No, Everybody loves their babies, right? So she hid him for three months. She's freaking out. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus uh, a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch so that it would float. And then he, she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile, hiding him in the reeds. His sister, not sure her age at this point, but she uh, old enough to make some smart decisions, stood at a distance to see what would happen to the little boy. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. Well, she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to go get it. And she opened it, ta-da, it's a baby. And he was crying and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. How do you think she knew it was a Hebrew baby? circumcision that's exactly right these boys are circumcised by the on the eighth day and everybody else is not so one look at him and oh look at that <laughs> he's a Hebrew baby and then the sister comes running up to Pharaoh's daughter says ah should i go and find one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you because that's what they would do they were called wet nurses something that was done for many 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 years kind of unheard of today. It's a a little rare, some still do it, but basically women who had an abundance of milk and they would nurse other people's babies for them who maybe were struggling. So she said, hey, you wanna go find a Hebrew woman to nurse the baby? And she said, well, yeah, go. So the girl went and got Moses' mom to nurse the boy. And uh, Pharaoh's daughter said to her, look, take this baby and nurse it for me and I'll pay you. So now this is great. All right. She's trying to save the baby. She hides the baby. Pharaoh's daughter finds it. She comes, doesn't know it's the mother. Say, hey, I'll pay you now to nurse this. Okay. Now she's making money while she's doing what she wants to do. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, at some point, he gets weaned. I don't know at what age they were weaning in those days. Uh, But then uh, the painful thing is she had to give the boy back to Pharaoh's daughter but still what joy in her heart knowing that so many other boys had been killed and that this boy would have surely been killed so anyway she took solace in the fact that he's being protected so uh, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son so he immediately gets the status as a son of Pharaoh's daughter pretty good status and Pharaoh's daughter named him Moses saying I drew him out of the water then boom in the very next verse, huge jump in time. One day after Moses had grown up, well, what age is this? Now, when you watch some of these uh, movies, be it the, the last one with a, was it Christian Bale? Boy, do they screw that up. Hollywood is so clueless. Anyway, or even Disney, you know, they show Moses as this young teenage boy. So, None at all. He's 40 years old now. Massive, we find this out later. He's 40 years old, so he is a grown, grown, grown man. He knows who he is. That's another thing in these stories. They always show, you know, of course, they show Moses and one of the other kids being great friends, and then someday that becomes the Pharaoh, and Moses, and they build this drama. All of that is not true, okay? The Pharaoh that eventually that Moses has to confront is not anybody he knows, and they're not buddies. They're not ex brothers or whatever, uh, none of that, and they always show this great trauma, dramatic moment when someone has to reveal to Moses that he's not Egyptian, that he is Jewish. Yeah, I think he figured that out a long time ago, the first time he took a bath with all the boys. <laughs> uh, how come I'm different than the rest of y'all? He knew from the get-go who he was. It didn't matter. He had the life of Riley, man. He was adopted into this extremely wealthy family. uh, Very, very blessed, had a good life, but he always knew he'd been adopted. And there was no mystery. So all of that nonsense Hollywood wants to bring up is just pure nonsense. Anyway, he's 40 years old at this point, and he goes out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. He felt bad. He knew he had a greatly blessed life. He knew he was part of those people. And he watched them as slaves and how brutally they were treated. His heart goes out for them. Clearly in his heart, he desires to help them. This is the very beginnings, I'm sure, of God uh, putting in his heart to want to deliver the people, which he eventually does, right? But not for a long time yet. So anyway, um, he sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. And it really ticks him off. Something goes off in Moses. Because, you know, first of all, they're they're so brutal to these people. And he knows he's a Hebrew too, and he gets really mad at the sky. So, looking this way and that, seeing nobody, he checks it out. He goes and he kills the Egyptian and buries him in the sand. So, apparently, he was really ticked. (laughs) You gotta really be mad. Well, you take somebody and you got to kill them. Well, the next day he goes out and he sees two Hebrews fighting each other. He says, guys, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? And the man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me just as you killed the Egyptian? And then Moses freaks. Ah! What I've done must have become known. Somebody saw me do it and the word is already spread. Well, then Pharaoh finds out about it, and now Pharaoh wants to arrest Moses and kill him. So when Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses runs for his life, flees from Pharaoh, and he goes to live in the land of Midian. So now his life has dramatically changed. He has been living a life of incredible luxury. Everything's been great, and now this thing, he thought he was doing the right thing bringing vengeance for his own people. And now he's running for his life. Now he's out in Midian, the middle of nowhere. And it says he sits down by a well. Now there's a priest of Midian. So, I mean, he's among pagan people at this point. The Midianites were pagans and worshiped false gods. And this guy was a priest of that false religion. Uh, So he goes out, he's around these people. Now a priest of Midian had seven daughters. (laughs) It's a bunch and they came to draw water and fill the troughs to water their father's flock. Well, some shepherds came along and drove them away. So there's just these other shepherds come on. They're just jerks. Hey, stupid girls, get out of here. And, uh, but Moses got up and came to their rescue. Now, here's a guy with his own bare hands killed an Egyptian. So I think he was kind of an intense fighter. <laughs> these guys scram <laughs> and they get out of there. And then uh, he protects these girls, and then he waters their flock. So when the girls return to Reuel, their father, he asks them, what do you guys be back so soon for? And they answered, well, an Egyptian guy rescued us from the shepherds. They were picking on us, and he saved us. And he even drew water for us and, f- and, wa- and watered the flock. And the guy says, where is he? Why did you leave him? Invite him to have something to eat. Why is he so intense? He's got seven daughters he has to move. (laughs) You're telling me a nice man helped you out and you didn't bring him home? (laughs) Go get him. (laughs) So they go get him, bring him into the house. And Moses agrees to stay with the man. Please stay, stay. Why? I got seven daughters I got to get rid of. (laughs) So he eventually gives his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. That's why he wanted him to stay. And of course, that's what Moses does. He marries Zipporah. Zipporah gives birth to a son. Moses names him Gershom, saying, I become a foreigner in a foreign land. And during that long period, how long? Anybody know? 40 years. 40 years he is taking care of sheep and uh, stuck out in the desert in Midian. And his life basically stunk. He went from a life of luxury to now all this stuff going wrong for him. And you can imagine what your life would feel like every day for 40 years in the dust and all you hear all day long is, Nah, this is his life. <laughs> How depressing at at times, I have no idea. But this is what he did. And he's there for 40, 40 years is a long time, boys and girls, you know. We talked about Joseph being stuck for 13 years in the toilet. Well, now Moses is there for 40 years. And that's a very long time. So during that long period, the king of Egypt died. And the Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of the slavery went up to God. God heard them groaning. And he remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I want to talk a little bit about this verse. I mentioned this when uh, uh, we were talking about uh, the flood. And how after the flood, God put a rainbow in the sky and promised never to flood, flood the earth again. and So, so I'm, But I want to repeat it again. They tell us pastors, I don't know who studies these things, but they tell us that you've got to tell some, your congregation something seven times before they're aware that you told it to them once. Why that is, I do not know. I always assume, well, I told them, we're done. It doesn't work that way. So this is two. There's five more coming, all right? So I got to point this out to you again. Now remember, God put the rainbow in the sky to remind who? Not us. Himself. God put the rainbow in the sky to remind himself. It's kind of like tying a bow on your finger. In fact, the first five, six, seven, eight times the word remember is in the Bible. It's about God remembering and God intentionally remembering. And it says here that he remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, why is this important? Well, because a lot of times in homes, I know husbands and wives, if there's one thing that drives them crazy, it's having to remind each other about stuff, and they get mad as a hornet about it. Usually, the wife has a complete fit about it, because she didn't want to have to tell him the first time, (laughs) which is just the truth, and y'all know it. But then, you gotta remind him again. And you gotta remind him again. You gotta get so mad and meltdown. Why do I have to remind him? Because he's a man. That's why, all right? And you gotta remind your children. You don't seem to get quite as mad with your children, but for some reason, you really go nuts on your husband. What's, the, and then the guys get mad. And they get defensive. Why are you trying to remind me? And then he starts slashing back out. Or sometimes the guy has to remind his wife. Hey, remember, we said we we're gonna do such and such. Remember? And couples will do this one or two times, and then they stop. And they just get angrier and angrier, and bitterness fills their heart, and pretty soon they are going at each other's throat. Stop it. There is nothing wrong with being reminded. What if reminding isn't so much that there's something wrong or that someone doesn't care, but that it's a family trait? We are made in the image and likeness of God. Literally, we are made, we look like God, we respond. I mean, when the devil looks at you, he hates you because he hates God. At least he's a bunch of little godlikes all over the place. And he hates mankind. Loves to bring death and destruction and disease and everything he can against us because of his hate being so great. But if God needs to be reminded... What makes you think you don't need to be reminded? What makes you think you don't have to remind your children? What makes you think you shouldn't have to remind your husband? This bitterness against reminding is poisonous, and y'all need to stop. The healthiest couples in the world are the ones who quietly and comfortably always remind each other. They always remind each other over and over and over and over again. My wife still reminds me of stuff. 45 years. In the littlest thing, she She still has to remind me when to take the garbage out every week. You think being a grown man, I would have figured it out by now. Apparently not, because I forgot again this week. (laughs) And I have garbage everywhere. (laughs) Oh man. What's the matter with you? I don't know. I can't remember. I I don't know. Who knows? But I often have to remind her of things, things that I need for her. Hello, hello. You know, it's like, you know. A guy saying he comes home and he would love it if his wife gave him a hug and a kiss when he comes home. And so she does it for two days and then forgets. Well, now he gets bitter and angry and it builds until this this huge fight explodes. It doesn't have to happen. Just remind her again. You walk in, hey, where's my kiss? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's all you got to do to each other. I need attention from you. I need physical attention from you. Whatever it is, keep reminding each other over and over and over and over and over. If God has to do it, what makes you think you don't have to do it. So what it means is something wrong. It means they don't care. It does not because God cares. Reminding is not a sign that something is wrong. What's wrong is when you go to remember and you can't find anything. Right? You go to the drawer where all the memories are, you open it up and it's empty. Oh, no, we got a problem. Okay. That's when something's wrong in your head. The fact that you all remembering is is taking something that's already in your head and bringing it to the forefront. That's all it is. God does it for himself. And God knows what we're like. How many times it says here that God remembered his covenant? You will see this over and over again throughout the Old Testament. And even when they would pray, they would pray to God, oh Lord, remember your promise to us. What are they doing? They're reminding God. God doesn't get ticked off. Oh, why are they reminding me I'm God? What's the problem? Never. It always brings remembrance to God. God knows. In fact, the very reason why Jesus did the Last Supper and why we're supposed to do it, we're about to do it together, is we would do it so that he said, you will remember me. Every time you do this, you will do this in remembrance of me. Why? He knows us. He knows us, we're like God. For some reason, you can just let something sit in the back and you will totally forget it. The whole reason of doing communion, every time as believers, is to remember that the Lord sacrificed his life for us. So, well I didn't really forget it. No, it's not that you forget it or that it gets lost. You're bringing it to the forefront. It's in your head. We just got to bring it every time. Remember, that's what this is about. After everything we do, all the activities in the church, everything you do all day long, we gather together. And if there's one thing, we always remind ourselves, Jesus died for our sins. That is why we do it. Don't get angry at each other. If you're going to have a great marriage and a great home, you have to get comfortable with reminding. Get as comfortable as you can, just do it. Over and over and over again. Even if your husband is a complete nitwit and cannot remember what day of the week the garbage goes out. And it's been a while now, you just keep doing it. She never gets bitter, she never gets angry. She usually does wait till I'm about to crawl into bed. (laughs) You would think that would teach me a lesson, right? Because I'm undressed, and all of a sudden, did you get to the garbage? Oh, man! Then I traumatize the neighbors as I run around in my underwear. Ah! Take this, you know. I, I throw on a robe. I guess I do. I don't know what I do. But anyway. Get comfortable with it. For some reason, I'm telling you, this one thing alone is responsible for the vast amount of bitterness and anger in homes. Just this point. That's why I'm bringing it up again. And I got five more times before most of you will even remember I said it once. You've got to get comfortable reminding each other. Remind your husband what you need from her. Remind your wife. Well, I talked about it. We talked about it three times already. <laughs> Who cares? Keep doing it. Get comfortable with doing it. And you'll notice the happiest couples in the world. Watch them. They're always reminding each other. Don't forget. that da, 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 da. Don't forget we got such and such. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Because they're not bitter. They're not angry about it. And they get what they need from each other because they're always reminding each other. They're not yelling and screaming, oh psycho with their kids, I got to remind you, I got to. Yeah, that's what you do. We remind each other. All you're doing is taking what's in the head and bringing it to the forefront. The only time it's ever a problem is when you go to the memory bank and then there's nothing there. That's it. When you can't remember is a sad thing. Don't get mad that you have to remind. If God has to do it, I think you can suck it up, buttercup. All right? And everything we do, and just like I said, so many things in our Christian faith is constantly brought up over and over and over again just to remind us. Ironically, people are really good at remembering bad things. They remember that nasty thing you said about me that one day. I'll never forget it, it was October 23rd, 2007. The wind was out of the south at 10 miles per hour, and it was partly cloudy with 40% chance of rain. And I remember you said I looked fat in that dress. Man, that stuff you guys hang on to, woo. You need to learn to forget the nasty stuff and intentionally remind each other about the things that are important. It's just that simple. Don't be like my parents. God bless them. They're both gone now. Terrorizing heaven, no doubt. (laughs) My parents, man, they fought like cats and dogs. Couldn't stand each other. Kept a record of very little transgression. We thought they were going to get a divorce in their 60s, early 60s. It was really rather traumatic for the family. But then they both got dementia. (laughs) And they couldn't remember they hated each other. They could, and we come over there holding hands and kissing each other and being nice. We're thinking, dee, 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 dee. <laughs> the vision of the body snatchers. What have you done with our parents? I mean, they couldn't remember they hated each other. Don't get to that point. All right. Take all the ugly, forget that stuff and intentionally remind each other about the things that are important. God does it and he tells us to do it. We're going to do it in just a minute as we do communion together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and for your truth. Lord, we thank you as we study your word, all that we're going to learn about the life of Moses and how he became this incredible man that you used, despite the fact he didn't want to be used. We'll look at that next week. Lord, I thank you you're bigger and greater than any of our failings. Help us to, as we take this time now to remember your death and crucifixion, to realize that remembering is a good thing not to get angry that we have to remember, be glad that we can remember. Help us get comfortable with this concept, not to feel bitter and angry that we have to constantly remind the people we're closest to what's important to us. Help us to get comfortable with it. Help us to be people that just don't keep records of wrong and intentionally work towards that which is right. In Jesus' name we pray and everybody said, amen, amen. bless you.